This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Let me just start with some prayer. God, I'm thankful that you are here. I'm thankful that you do bring your righteousness near, that you love those who in and of ourselves are, are not lovely, that you, you care for us. You have created us, as it says, even before we were born. Lord, you, you care for and draw near to your precious children. So I thank you that you're here with us this morning, Lord. I thank you that you're present. I thank you that you are working in our hearts and minds. I thank you that your spirit is poured out and that you, through him, dwell in us richly. I thank you that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Lord. I pray this morning as we look at Isaiah, as we think about even just the idea of idolatry, that there from your spirit dwelling in us would be a measure of conviction, that there would be a measure of humility as we recognize that we just don't see you as we should. But Lord, you say that we don't seek you in vain. So I pray that as we draw near to you, that you would then reveal your goodness to us, reveal your character to us so that we would love you and be drawn to you and and really have the peace and the joy that come from your presence. Help us with that this morning. In your name I pray, amen. So um, I don't know about you, but when I read verse one, uh, I'm not super familiar with ancient Mesopotamian deities, Bel and Nebo. Um, but that's how the chapter starts. So he's, he's actually, you know, if you're tracking a little bit in the book of Isaiah, um, in chapter 13, chapter 21, uh, the, the kingdom of Babylon is sort of like the, the um, um, I mean, I'm, I'm looking for a less cheesy example, but I'll say it. It's sort of like the, um, uh, the, the uh, oh good, I can't remember his name, so I won't use that example. He's like the, the I'll put it this way, the, the, the ruler of Babylon and the kingdom of Babylon is like the dark, secret, bad guy behind the scenes of everything that's going on. So, so Isaiah is sort of explaining to us, he talks about the kingdom of Assyria, talks about uh, everything going on in Israel with the different kings. He, he remains, that's a, that's a uh, uh, <laughs> I, I was actually thinking of Thanos, uh, because in the first series, he's kind of back there and you get little hints of it, you know, but he doesn't actually come to the fore until later in the story. So there we got, we got to the cheesy um, analogy either way. But, but this, and I, and I think in the same way, when you look at the Old Testament, uh, the textbook enemy of God before this was Pharaoh. Like if you're gonna give an example of someone who is literally trying to destroy the infant children of Israel, trying to cut them off, um, is battling against God uh, uh, through his servant Moses. There's a, there's a textbook example of Pharaoh. He's sort of like the, the pre-Babylon uber bad guy of the Old Testament. But as, the, as Israel moves forward, as the, as the story of God continues in our Bibles, Babylon becomes like the, the archetype enemy of God. And it's even carried into the book of Revelation when it talks about that great city, Babylon. So there's this idea that Babylon is sort of a, is, is, a, is an example of a kingdom with a ruler who is completely against God's people. And so uh, Isaiah is bringing up the kingdom of Babylon and the effects of, of what this kingdom is gonna do as he walks through his uh, prophecy all the way through. And, and Babylon is actually not yet on the scene. So historically, Isaiah is actually prophesying about a great kingdom that is to come, that will be an enemy of God, uh, but, but is not yet on the scene. And so last week we talked about Cyrus, and Cyrus is a future king of Babylon that God will actually use. And it says in, in scripture, it says in Isaiah that Cyrus doesn't know the Lord, yet God's like, I'm so powerful. I am the, the author of everything. 
but I'm going to use this enemy, this king of Babylon, who doesn't know me, to rebuild my temple. And so he's, he's speaking of prophetically of this king that will, that will in the future will actually accomplish God's purposes even though he's part of the kingdom of Babylon, part of the kingdom that is, in a sense, anti the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Israel. And so he's sort of telling us this story and he talks about, um, actually I'll back up a little bit to give us some context with the idols. We, super fascinating, we have uh, the Cyrus's, um, it's like a, it's a rock, a circular rock. Uh, what's the name of it? It's uh, the Cylinder of Cyrus, I think, is what it's actually called. The, the, Wiki, the Wikipedia page, at least, um, is this Cylinder of Cyrus, where it's like a, it's a proclamation of all the things, it's a proclamation of, of something that Cyrus the king is doing for his kingdom. And he gives credit for what he's doing to the god um, Marduk, M-A-R-D-U-K. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but you know, that's what it is. And most scholars believe that Bel Marduk was the, the same deity. But like we would say, we trust the Lord Almighty. You know, we call him Lord. Uh, Bel is just an ancient way to say the Lord. So Bel Marduk was an ancient deity that Cyrus gave credit to for his ability to conquer and to rule and reign on this like ancient cylinder that we have. Um, so it's, it's super, so he, what, what Isaiah is telling us here is he starts this chapter, he's looking at the gods of the ancient kingdom of Babylon, even like ahead of time. And from what we know, these gods were probably still prevalent uh, before Babylon's rise. Um, so it's not like, I mean, these could have been, these could have been known ancient deities, even to the people who are reading and hearing from um, Isaiah during this time. But he's speaking of two prominent deities in the ancient world, Bel and Nebo, Bel Marduk and Nebo. And he's talking about the future fall of Babylon. Look at what he says. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beast and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. So he's talking about the idea that these images, these things that have been made that are meant to represent these powerful gods, these images that are meant to, that are usually uh, brought sort of like in the, there's like, there's processions of, of proclaiming the glory of these gods where they're, they're coming in on uh, horses and chariots and different things and they'll, they'll, they'll sort of like parade these images of these gods around. And Isaiah is turning it on its heads and saying, look, these, these statues, these things that represent these gods, Bel and Nebo, are wearying a donkey as they go into captivity. Like, this is how powerful these false gods are. They're making this donkey tired because they're just rocks on his back as that donkey itself is taking them into captivity. And it's meant to say, like, what good is that? Like, if these are the, 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 these are the powerful gods of the nations, Belmar, Duke, and Nebo, and the, the images that represent them are wearing out this donkey as they wander into captivity. Like, what good are these gods? When I hear some of the details of these things, I think it's easy for me, um, and, you know, maybe uh, Josh could probably tell you otherwise, uh, going to India recently, there, there are images there, and there's, uh, worship and praise given to a particular statue. But for most of us, uh, I have yet to be in a counseling situation where I go home uh, or I go to someone's house and they have like a statue set up and say, oh, I really enjoy your church and hold on, we have to pause and give incense and pray to this image of this other God over here. Um, so when I read things like this from the Old Testament, I think it's kind of easy for me to dismiss the relevance like, you know, I don't have, none of us have like, you know, I had a bunch of Britney Spears stuff when I was in high school, you know, it was like the closest to like an image, you know, <laughs> so, but, you know, um, 
But we don't, we don't usually have like a, a physical thing that we attribute glory and honor and power to and say, look, here is an image of the God that I worship. So when the Bible talks about idolatry, I think it's easy for us to, to look at that and say, I don't, I'm not sure what that really has to do with kind of where, where I'm at. And on the other side, a lot of us have grown up in sort of Christian circles, use the word idolatry in almost like a Christianese kind of way, you know? And I think that comes from, uh, you know, uh, I think what we did this morning is we reflect on the idols that we're carrying. We reflect on the, I, I think, what, what, so we consider what is it that we rely on ultimately in the world for our joy and our peace? Like, what is it that we have gone to for help? And it's probably not a statue that you're like sacrificing animals to or, or bowing down to or burning incense. Probably not that. But what is it in our life that we have turned to to help to rescue us that at the end of the day ultimately just falls short because it isn't God himself. It isn't, it isn't the creator of the universe, the one who has designed the one who's designed us to find our fulfillment, our joy, and our peace in his very presence. And so we throw around this idolatry word, and this morning I wanted to take just a couple of minutes to sort of think through what it means to have idolatry, to think through what it means to have idolatry. Because this image of these statues attached to donkeys who are wore out, going off into captivity, I think is a really neat image of the worthlessness of that. You know, it's like your town is being ransacked. Your, uh, your, where, where your, and your entire sort of livelihood is being conquered by enemies coming from somewhere else. And now you're being hauled off as slaves. You're being hauled off and being replanted somewhere else. And the, the thing that you thought would rescue you is attached to a donkey wearing out that animal at the same time you're being wore out. So there's like embarrassing picture of like the, the uselessness of our idolatry. And so I think it would be good for us to just think for a second, like what does it mean then if we're not building statues, if we're not uh, bowing down to images, if we've grown out of our Britney Spears posters or whatever it is, what, what does it mean for us then to have a measure of idolatry? And, and even in Isaiah and in other, other places in scripture, it mentions this idea of idols of our hearts. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be uh, something that we have constructed and put in our room somewhere in a prominent place. We, we deep down in the, the core of our being, who we are, our, our heart is like the very center of who we are. The thing that affects our emotions, our mind, our body, the, the, the spiritual center of our being, we, we create and build these images of things, this idea of things that will ultimately give us a sense of joy and peace that will ultimately rescue us, that will ultimately help us deal with all the broken things in the world. We, we build this image sort of in our hearts and that's what we worship and that's what we serve. And so I wanted to look at Romans chapter one because I think this is the easiest place in scripture to just pause and say, what does it mean for there to be idolatry? What does it mean for us to have a measure of idolatry? And that should be up on the screen. So here is Paul explaining this to us. He's giving us a lot more language to think through what it means to worship and serve something less than God himself. And hopefully as we look at what idolatry means and we have a better sense of what it means to be idolatrous, that the spirit will bring a measure of conviction. It'll help us realize where we maybe anchor ourselves in, a, in something that's not God. We can recognize that. And then through the spirit as well, we can repent. And we turn away from the things that we anchor ourselves to. And we ultimately turn to God himself. We ultimately enjoy more of his presence, more of his character, more of his beauty, more of his glory. We enjoy more of who he is and what he says to you as his children and that gives us true joy and peace in someone, in God, and something that never changes. Something that doesn't get thrown on the back of a donkey and wear him out. 
someone who is good, unchangeable, and always present and always with us. So the idea is to just wrestle with this idea of idolatry for ourselves so that we could turn away from that and embrace and enjoy more of God himself. So here's Paul sort of explaining to us this, this idea of idolatry. And he's talking about idolaters. So those are the ones who are claiming to be wise. And, and I'm just going to, um, maybe I'll just preface it with this. Paul is making, you know, this is like the Enneagram one in me is like making these broad sweeping statements that are like super extreme um, that I think are helpful, like a lens to see. But the majority of us are not all idolatrous or like all resting and enjoying God. <laughs> like that's just not life. Like we're not all the way over here or all the way over here. But when Paul paints this picture of what's going on all the way over here, it can help us recognize that wherever we're at in our lives in this like gray area that we live in, we can recognize that and it can draw us closer to resting in and enjoying and having more of the glory of God, worshiping and serving more of the true God than these things that we sort of construct in our minds and in our hearts. So, so this is him giving us like the worst case uh, scenario over here. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So there's first, there's this idea of exchanging glory. Exchanging glory. And you can see where he's going as we talk about these images. Let's keep going and then we'll kind of sum it up. Verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then again, verse 25 says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's another exchange. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So there's two things that are happening here in idolatry. Exchanging glory from the previous verse and exchanging truth. When we exchange glory and we exchange truth, then what we end up doing is worshiping and serving something in the creaturely realm as opposed to the creator. And that's an important concept to just think about idolatry. There really are only two modes of being in all of existence. God and everything else. We have the immortal God. We have the God who is spirit. We have God who is unchangeable, who is all-powerful, who is eternal. We have all these descriptors of who God is. And it's interesting, a lot of those descriptors are just like, not this. Like, we're, we're time-bound. He is eternal. He's not time-bound. He is... Uh, uh, Another one is he's ase. He's like completely separate from everything that is because of who he is. We're not. We're bound in space and time. So, so when we think about two realities in scripture, the most basic level of everything you read in scripture, there are two realities. There are what God has created and there is the uncreated God. The, the beauty, the glory, the wonder of the gospel is that the uncreated God steps into his creation in space and time and in Jesus Christ, but he also interacts with his creation as he speaks to us, as he reveals himself through the different acts that he does, as we, even as we talk about how he's working in history through Cyrus or through Israel or, or through his church, the unchanging eternal God interacts with the time-bound creation that he has made. So for you and I then, with idolatry, like back it up a little bit to idolatry, at the end of the day, we have to ascribe the right truth in the right glory to the uncreated God or to created things. That's where we exchange glory or we exchange truth. There, there are facts on the ground. There are, there are realities about who God is and what he's doing and what he's meant to do as our creator to, to fulfill us, to bring us joy, to bring us peace, to rescue us, to be the one that we're near, the one that we're intimate, the one that we're designed to image and reflect everything about who God is 
and the, the truth and the glory that's in creation itself, which there is. There, there's, there's wonderful things where God is displaying his glory in creation. There's wonderful things that we can be drawn to that are good, that are beautiful, that are true, that are reflecting everything from God himself. The problem with idolatry, the problem with idolatry is when we exchange those realities and we begin to ascribe or we begin to think or we begin to, to practically live our lives like the things in the created realm are meant to do what only God is meant to do. That is the essence of idolatry. And when we do that, when we exchange those things, when we exchange the truth and the glory of God for created things over here, the result of that, he says the result of that is we begin to worship and serve things over here. We begin to worship and serve things over here. So then how do we recognize our own idolatry? How do we recognize when we have made that exchange inappropriately? The short answer of that is it's kind of hard. <laughs> like our hearts are good at tricking us into thinking that who we worship and serve is God himself. And a lot of times it's not. <laughs> and so his scripture is speaking to us is trying to communicate to us truths so that you and I, through the Holy Spirit, through his work in our lives, could genuinely begin to recognize, like the, Jesus said when the Spirit comes, he will come to convict us of sin. Idolatry is like the chief sin. It's the, the sort of the root of everything. And the Spirit is coming to convict us of our idolatry. So, so we can ask ourselves, we can look at Scripture and say, well, if there's these two categories, if I'm called to worship and serve in the Creator Himself, and yet I'm going to exchange the realities and the things that He's meant to do and put, them, put the weight over here on creation, put the, the weight on anything in the creation that He's made, whether it's my spouse, whether it's my job, whether it's the beautiful creation of the mountains, whether it's my home, whether it's my children, whether it's my job, whether it's the shows I like to watch, whether it's the, you know, pick a thing, whether it's scrolling on Reddit for forever, you know, like whatever, you know, there's varying degrees of these things. Whatever it is I'm placing over here, and it should be something God is doing, how do I begin to like recognize those things? Because we know our, our, our families are good, the creation is wonderful, like God has created all these things for us to enjoy for us to realize that he loves us and cares for us. So how do we wrestle with these things so that we recognize when we have fashioned an idol out of them, when we've done that exchange, when we've given something in the created world, glory and truth that really should only be ascribed to God himself. One of the questions that kind of helps me recognize this. You know, I was sitting on the idea of glory and truth. Glory is uh, another Christian-y word, but it's like majesty or worth or weight or value. So, so God is the most glorious, the source of all good, the source of everything that I am created to find my fulfillment in, in him. So then when I'm dealing with the world around me, when I'm dealing with things that are broken, as we all do in some way, shape, or form, where do I go to find the joy and peace that God offers? Where do I go to find that joy and peace in the things that are created as opposed to in him? Where do I take the glory that is his and place it on something in this world? And I think a good question to ask is what takes up your time or your thoughts when you have time? Because <laughs> we're all kind of busy, most of us. What takes up your time and your thoughts when you finally have some time? <laughs> and why do we go to that? And whatever, you know, I'm not, 
uh, that could be any number of things. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, I think parenting is complicated. When I finally have time, one of the things that takes up my time and thought is like wrestling with how to wrestle with my child. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But do I need him to be a certain way so that I have peace and joy? Am I putting the glory of God on my child and saying, this is what I need so that I have a measure of peace and joy? That's the exchange. I'm making that exchange. I mean, it could be screen time. You know, like, I think, like, when I finally have time, what do I think about? What do I do? Sometimes it might be like me time, whatever that is. You know, I just have to, I just have to check out and watch a show or just game real hard, whatever, whatever thing, you know, or get on my bike or, you know, we all kind of have like whatever me time looks like. And that's a good thing, right? Like none of those things are, God has given us stuff, but do we put me time? Is it like, are we exchanging it and saying, I actually can't have joy. I can't have peace. I can't be fulfilled unless I get that because then I'm exchanging the glory that God has, the goodness of who he is, and I'm putting it on something. I'm putting it on me, honestly. Like, can I bear the weight of my own fulfillment? Ugh. Like, you can't. We exchange those things. Another question you can ask. It's kind of along the same lines is what, with our busy life, right? Like when I go from this thing to this thing to this thing, what do I absolutely have to make time for? What do I have to make time for? Maybe I look at my year calendar, you know? Like what has to fit in? I'm not that far ahead, right? <laughs> Bridget is looking like five years ahead. Like, what do we have to do? I'm like, but we're, we need to be at church in 20 minutes, you know? I'm like, this far. I need to or I won't have peace and joy, you know, whatever. But I think what, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give you like a framework to say, none of these things, like we should plan ahead. We should like make time for things in our life. Like we need to do that. There's like, but if I don't, will everything crumble? It's like my ability to rest and have joy and have peace, determinative on this thing that I have to make time for. And here's what we're doing. It's the exchange. We're taking the glory and the goodness of God and we're putting it on something else. We're building an idol. And, And it says, when we do that exchange, it says, what do we do? We worship and we serve. If that is an idol, I rearrange everything around that. I'm thinking about that thing as I'm doing other things because that's the thing that I really want. We worship and serve it. We're obedient to it because we need it so that you and I could, so we could have a measure of peace and joy. These are just, these are, you know, this is part of discerning. This is part of like recognizing where we put our weight. This is part of being in the Christian community is like we don't, we can't sit in a vacuum and read our Bibles and come out like Jesus, you know? Like we need his word to be proclaimed. We need to be wrestling with what he's saying. We need people in our lives that we trust, that know us, and that care for us enough to say, hey, I think you've made this something that is replacing God. And I'm praying for you, and I'm asking the spirit to work and to convict you and to help you see that this thing you're putting all this weight on is gonna fail you. Isn't going to give you what only the creator was meant to give you. <laughs> because those are the, the two separate realms. Like this is a creaturely thing that can be good and wonderful and a blessing and from God. But if you're putting all this weight on it that only God himself can carry, it's gonna end up like those statues strapped to a donkey wearing them out as it's exiled into suffering. So there's a couple, so we've been, when I think about idolatry, there's like two branches. 
that I kind of, everything I just said is like, when we make something in the creaturely realm, have the weight that only God should have, right? That's kind of what we've been talking about. But there's another way we can do this. We can take something from the creaturely realm and ascribe it to God. Here, a perfect example is from the Israelites when they make the golden calf. Moses, not so happy for that, right? Like he drops the tablets, busts them up, grinds up the gold tablets and is like, drink from the, <laughs> drink, drink from the stream of this gold I've just ground it into dust. But what's interesting about that is when they make this idol, when they make this calf, they say, here is Yahweh, the one who's rescued us. Like they're, they think they're worshiping the true God. And they fashioned him in a way that is coming from the creaturely realm. That is coming from the creaturely realm. We do the same thing. Have you ever thought, as you think about God, our creator, our savior, our Lord, our brother, our friend, however, whatever biblical view of him, when you think about God, has he ever been disappointed in you? Has he ever been disappointed in you? You're bringing creaturely things, relational things from the, from the world, people you know that you let down and disappoint. You're bringing those things into who God is. He loves you, cares for you, considers you, is zealous for you because of everything that Jesus has done. That's why he's not disappointed in you. To think that his love for you could change is idolatry because you're imagining a God that doesn't exist. You're taking creaturely things, relational things with a creature. Maybe it's your parents. You know, we project a lot of parent trauma on our God. Maybe it's your coworkers, maybe it's your spouses, and you're projecting it on a God who Ephesians says loved you before the foundation of the world, but is disappointed in you this week because you did something wrong. <laughs> like that's not a God that exists. Do you imagine a God that isn't interested in certain parts of your life? Like, they're just things that I am excited to talk to Bridget about, and then there are things like, Bridget, I don't think you're gonna care about this, but I need to just tell you because I like this. <laughs> you know, like, she's kind, and it's like, okay. <laughs> I appreciate that. But if you think there's an aspect of your life that God isn't intimately invested in. You've exchanged things about him that are lies and projected our creaturely relationships onto a God that doesn't exist. So it's not even a hair from your head falls to the ground. I think I'm mixing up the sparrow and the hairs thing, but theologically it's true, we'll go with that. <laughs> I just meshed. Hey, in the New Testament, they mesh verses together. I can mesh verses together. But he knows every hair on your head. And he says, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground unless it's part of his plan. How much more valuable is every part of your life? When you imagine a God that doesn't care about every single little detail of your day-to-day -day life, you're imagining a God that doesn't exist. You're building an idol.
And if you imagine a God that way, whether he's disappointed in you, whether he's not interested in stuff, think about how that affects how you worship and serve him. Why consider him then this part of your life if he don't care? Why praise him and give him glory and honor for the gifts that he's given you in this part of your life if he doesn't care? How exhausting is it to come back to him if you just feel like you're gonna disappoint him again? That affects what you do when you imagine this God that isn't real. That's what idolatry is. And I said it before is most of us don't exist in this space of like 100% idolatry or like complete perfect knowledge of God. <laughs> like if you, every wrong thought about God is imagining a God that doesn't exist. <laughs> I mean, when that was first put to me, I was like, well, what hope is there for me? <laughs> like, how can I genuinely think of and, and have a real picture of who God is if my heart is this easily making of idols? <laughs> Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. We're just pumping, we're pumping them out. We're, a, we're imagining gods that don't exist and we're making of gods of things that aren't God all the time. And kind of the, the short of it is, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we do have no hope. Like we need the Spirit to give us a true vision of who God is. Like we need the Holy Spirit to reveal the real God to us so that we worship and serve him instead of these anything else that we're talking about. So that we worship and serve him instead of an imagined version of him. kind of the good news, and we'll jump right back to Isaiah. The good news is that the Holy Spirit uses means and mechanisms to help us really understand and see God for who he truly is. I think if you, even right now, if I've said anything about our idolatry that has cut a little deep, that's the spirit at work. There is the Holy Spirit in you working to convict you of what sin really is. He is at work in your heart right now. And the good news of that verse is he doesn't come to just convict us of sin because that would be the worst religion ever. <laughs> he comes to convict us of righteousness, like the goodness, the, the justice, the the amazing commitment that God has for us. We would come to actually reveal to us who God truly is. I think the good news in, in sort of the way that we change who we worship and serve, the way that we change how we understand who God is, especially in this passage, it may not be like the only way, right? The way we change who we worship and serve is to listen and remember, to listen and remember. And that's, those are words that are from the text and we'll kind of look at that. I wanna show you just, we're gonna look at three things to listen and remember. Three things to say, God, help me see you for who you really are so that the God I worship and serve is, is the true God himself. And so that as I worship and serve the true God, as I put the glory and honor and majesty and, and, and realize the promises and the truth that God has communicated to me and I'm wrestling with the difficult things in life, I actually am resting on the God who sustains me, who brings me joy, who brings me peace, who gives me a firm foundation to stand on. And that's what he says, verse three. Here's God speaking to you through the Spirit. In his word, he says, listen to me, O house of Jacob. Listen to me, my people, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth. What a statement, right? Who have been born by me from before your birth. Here's God speaking to you and saying, I've known who you were. I have, I think the way Paul puts it in Ephesians, I've loved you and I've cared for you before the foundation of the world. I've carried you from the womb. 
even to your old age, I am he. And to the gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. Listen to him. Listen to what he's saying about you. The gospel, the good news that our creator sent his son to die and to be risen up and to rule and reign and to pour out his Holy Spirit and to unite himself with you is that the love of God is personal and intimate. Listen to him. He loves you. He's known you. He will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. I said, listen and remember. Verse eight, he tells us to remember. (laughs) Kind of verses five through seven, he's throwing all the idols under the bus again, you know? (laughs) Like, hey, I'm telling you what I'm promising you I will do. Listen to me, I'm I'm trying to encourage you that I love you and will save you. All of the technology in the world can only get you so far. It's kind (laughs) of the next couple verses. The goldsmith can do all these things. And and all the things that we build up in our mind can only go so far. And then he says, remember this and stand firm. How do we change our worship? How do we order ourselves around the true God? He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. He understands that we fall short. Like he's not beating around the bush with us. I appreciate that. You, you, you weren't, you know, one of the things I really appreciate when I read um, a book about the attributes of God, it's just like a sentence that's stuck in my mind. It's impossible for God to learn because <laughs> he knows everything. <laughs> when you disappoint him this week, wink, you didn't teach him anything else about yourself. He knows who you are. He, he isn't unaware of your own propensity to ascribe worship and glory to things not him. He's speaking honest with you and saying, yet I have created you, yet I love you, yet I will save you. Listen to how much I care for you. He says, remember, says, for I am God, verse nine, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. This is that... He's trying to help us see these two categories. There's, there's God and there's creation. There's none, those things don't overlap. Those are two separate realities. Look at what he says in verse 10. This is, this is how different he is. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. He declares what will happen from beginning to end. What is, what is like that? I think that's kind of been, you know, just since we were talking about it earlier, the Marvel stuff. That's what's hilarious to me about some of the things. It's like they literally cannot imagine a being with all of Hollywood's effort and might that like has the authority and power of the God of the Bible. It wouldn't be fun to watch. <laughs> Like there has to be some weakness, some conflict, some other thing, some other, and God's like, hey, everything, I've, this is, I made it, this is, I made it from beginning to end, this is came from me, period. No help, no, no conflicts. This is who I am. There is nothing you can imagine that is as great and as wonderful as I am. God's like, remember that about me. I'm very different. This is what he says. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. My counsel will stand. He just said, I created, I will save. He just said, I will carry you. 
I will rescue you. I will be present with you. I'm intimate with you. And also, I made everything and nothing can distract me from my purposes for you. That's the God who is for you. That's the God who loves you. That's the God who demonstrated his character in the person of Jesus Christ. He's not led astray. (laughs) My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. You can read Isaiah like 40 through 46, basically. And God is over and over and over and over again reminding you who he really is. The last thing he says, he tells us, listen to the good news that it's personal, that's forever, that's intimate. He says, remember who I am. I'm God. I'm unchangeable. I'm spirit. I'm good. Our confession says that he is someone who rewards those who seek after him. Isaiah has told us that chapter and chapter. He says in the previous chapter, I didn't say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. He was like, if those who come towards me, I'll reveal myself to them. And then he says in verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart. Just kind of like brutally honest, but he cares. We, he's, he's seeing through our Instagram version of ourselves, you know? Like when we're at our darkest place, when we feel like we've completely dropped the ball, he knows and sees that and says, hey, I love you. I care for you. I'm moving towards you. He says, listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. I bring near my righteousness. We are far from righteousness. If we have any conviction of how we view God or where we worship and serve or or the things that give us comfort and joy and peace, the things we exchange and think this is what will actually help me deal with all the stuff going on in the world. This is what will rescue me. If we have any conviction of all of the way we think about God, he's saying, "Uh uh-huh. He says, you who are far from righteousness, you idol factories. And it's like everything I think inside of us wants him to then, then like we hear that sentence, you who are far from righteousness, and we don't feel his affection. Like we're like, it's like not even something we want to like wrestle with. And yet the very next sentence is I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. I bring near my goodness. I'm not far from you. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Hebrews says that you and I, those of us who are united to Christ, those of us who have a better priest who is continually making intercession for us, the book of Hebrews tells us that you and I have come to the heavenly city, Jerusalem. Like we're there. Paul says that we are already seated with him at the right hand of the Father. There is a real sense in which because of what Jesus has done, because of our union with a personal Savior who loves you, that I can look at you and say, hey, listen to him. He's not disappointed in you. Listen to them. He's not disinterested in other parts of your life. 
In fact, in and through Jesus Christ, you can be enjoying his presence, his affection, his glory, his goodness now and forever. What does Jesus tell us is eternal life? Is to know God and the one whom he sent. That's eternal life. That's what we are missing. And we go to the creation and we say, I need life. I need to be fulfilled. I need peace. I need joy. I need something to last and give me the peace and give me the joy and give me the hope that I don't have in a world that's broken. What a good impulse. Things are terrible sometimes, sometimes more than others. And God is saying, here I am. Stubborn in heart, I'm coming towards you. I want to give you the life you're missing now and for all eternity. Thinking a lot about the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is our only comfort, our only comfort in life and death? We don't like that. We have plenty of other comforts, you know? <laughs> so I just encourage you as you think about these things, ask God to use the Spirit to show you where you don't see him correctly and to show you where you ascribe glory and honor to something that's not him. Ask him to help you see that. And when you draw near to him and you say, oh, I'm not righteous, he says, uh-huh, but I bring my righteous towards you. I bring my goodness towards you because I love you and I will carry you close to my chest from before you were born to all eternity. That's the good news. That's the God that we worship. Let's pray and thank him for that. God, you are, you're here. You're here you're bringing comfort you bring a sense of conviction but only so that we would know how gracious you truly are God you give us everything we don't deserve because that's who you are. And we need your spirit to help us know you how you really are. And you promise to do that. You promise to reveal yourself to us. And I'm thankful that you do. I'm thankful that you bring your righteousness towards us who are not righteous. You're a good God, and we thank you for that. Amen.